Welcome to the Move Against Cancer podcast, the podcast that aspires to support and inspire people to move, exercise and live an active and fulfilling life despite a cancer diagnosis. The podcast where we share the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. We know that many people are scared to stay active during cancer treatment. We know that for some, cancer can take away the hope that comes from dreaming of a future. And we know many people diagnosed with cancer feel isolated and lonely. We hope that by sharing the stories of others finding their way through cancer, the Move Against Cancer podcast will provide hope, support and a sense of empowerment to anyone living with and beyond cancer. So today I am delighted to be joined by Tracy Crouch. Uh, Tracy is Member of Parliament for Chatham and Aylesford. She is former Minister for Sport, Civil Society and Loneliness. She's a keen and very competent football player, football coach and cyclist, and she's just finished her treatment for breast cancer. Okay, so Tracy Crouch, thank you very much for joining us. Um, so you've just finished quite recently, I think, your treatment for breast cancer. How are you doing? Really well, thank you. Um, I've been really lucky throughout my treatment, uh, which included chemotherapy as well as radiotherapy, that my side effects have been quite limited. Um, so I've managed to carry on working throughout. I've managed to carry on doing some form of exercise uh, throughout my entire treatment and uh, now just kind of getting on with it really. So I know that you are very passionate about sports. Um, I think our sporting kind of prowess differs. You're a very, very keen footballer, um, a very good footballer I hear. And um, one of the things I liked hearing most about you is that you're the first female player on the MPs football team, um, which made me chuckle. Um, so you said you you did manage to to stay active during your cancer treatment. How how did you do that? And did you did you find it helpful? I did. Um, I, I mean, I haven't played football for a while in fact I haven't played football since diagnosis because the football team's in London and I live in Kent so uh, I've kind of been locked down in Kent for uh, since June last year um, but you know I've, I've kept myself active throughout whether that's going either out on the bike or I've got a turbo trainer which I hook the bike up to and so can cycle indoors uh, or even just going for for a walk um, I've managed to keep keep going um, my own oncologist is a is a real passionate believer in the power of exercise um, and he follows me on Strava so I kind of <laughs> felt that I yeah, he was he was watching to see whether or not I am um, I, I was actually staying fit um, and he, I remember him saying in, in one of the pre-chemo uh, conversations that we had that um, there had been some studies that showed that uh, uh, patients who did exercise 45 minutes before having chemotherapy had fewer side effects. Uh, and so uh, it's about a 45 minute walk from my house to the hospital. So out of the eight chemo sessions, I managed to walk for six of them um and um the, unfortunately the the last chemo session it was absolutely hammering it down with red. <laughs> uh, and and one was just actually because I, I practical reasons but um and it was right I mean I, I didn't suffer any poor side effects and uh so I, I kind of my head seems to think that he was probably right about it <laughs> 
So is that something that you asked him about or did he he bring that up himself? So, I mean, he he knew that I was the former sports minister. Yeah. So, um, you know, he, he already knew that uh, I like a lot of exercise and, and that uh, I'm, I'm a believer in, in good physical health. Uh, he knew that I was already quite sporty um, and we share a passion in cycling. So, um, so, so we were having conversations about it. Um, I remember asking him specifically about two things, actually, um, physical exercise and nutrition. Um, now, physical exercise, he was able to help with nutrition less so. Um, and um, uh, unfortunately, nutrition is still some kind of an area where I think there's a big gap in kind of understanding. And, you know, and certainly it's very difficult to find people who are perhaps experts in mm-hmm. um, post-cancer nutrition. And whereas exercise is something that a lot of um of of studies have been done and a lot of oncologists are interested in it um and so you know i think that we were able to have a conversation about it in a more kind of factual way that's i mean that's really good to hear because it's one of our our biggest barriers at the moment is that a lot of a lot of people a lot of healthcare professionals who don't practice exercise themselves don't bring that up with patients and don't feel able sometimes to bring it up with patients um so yeah that's i mean that's that's really positive it's it's something that I feel can make a it, I I guess it it can give you back a sense of control in some ways. Yeah, I think so. Um I you know I we know that exercise is good for our mental well-being as well as our physical mm. well-being. So actually sometimes going for a walk even if I felt a bit grotty was a way of getting outside it was a way of um of keeping myself sane. Um you know I mean I think going through cancer is is quite an isolating experience um now doing that during lockdown as well I think well there are pros and cons I mean actually in many respects I didn't feel so isolated because mm-hmm. everybody was in <laughs> lockdown so I wasn't really missing out on anything. no FOMO <laughs> um yeah exactly I had no FOMO at all um and uh and actually people weren't watching to see you know how much engagement I was doing with work because we were all stuck at home doing you know parliamentary business virtually anyway so you know so there was less pressure in that sense but you are obviously shielding your immune system is is less and and again we know that exercise can boost your immune system fresh air boosts your immune system and so actually getting out and doing something was both good for my physical health and my mental health. So I've I've heard you you talk a lot about mental health and and general well-being and it's something that I'm really passionate about and and something that 5K your own move charity is is trying to trying to work on um and I think you use or spoken about how you use mindfulness and meditation to optimize your your mental health at times how do you think that we can help encourage those diagnosed with cancer or or any long-term health condition um to employ both physical strategies such as moving and, and exercise and also psychological strategies like mindfulness or, or what other other strategies people might find helpful to, to make their experience more manageable? Because I, I, don't, I don't think it's something we do very well in the NHS. No, I, I agree with you, actually. And, and I remember when we were doing the sports strategy, which I was in charge of back in 2015, um, we were actually finding it quite difficult to engage with the with um, staff within the NHS because obviously the NHS tells you to be healthy and fit mm-hmm. and yet we don't give uh, staff members in the NHS opportunities to 
find their own sort of kind of place in in health and well-being and you know we were talking to occupational health within the NHS as to you know should there be lunchtime classes and things like that but of course saying things like that from me you know from a professional perspective doesn't um, make, you need a lunch time to do it <laughs> well exactly that's the point you don't have lunch breaks you don't I mean you have like you snatch you know sandwiches and and that's it and so you know it, it is really difficult um but I think you know that there's in answer to your question I think there's there's several things I mean first of all I think if you're already fit and healthy when you're diagnosed with cancer the the one thing that you 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 think about is you know, can I still continue to do exercise? I mean, it was almost one of my first questions of, you know, will I be able to still go out cycling? Will I still be able to, um, you know, do, do the things that I love? And and you are a bit frightened, you know, because obviously you have in your mind an image of somebody who's going through cancer, uh, of being weak and weary and pale and drawn. And of course, some people are and other people are not. And But you never see the other people. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, uh, so so it is a kind of like saying to those people, you will be able to maintain some, you know, some, if not all of your lifestyle, albeit dotted around the appointments of, you know, for, for treatment, but also a few days after for some of the effects of treatment and don't push yourself, but also don't do nothing. Um, and I think those messages aren't necessarily and automatically um told to people and so you know there are people who perhaps have been particularly fit and healthy in the past who suddenly get a diagnosis of cancer and stop and that's not a good place to be but then likewise there are people who get diagnosed with cancer who are not perhaps in a physical activity routine you know they don't go out twice a week for a run or whatever who could benefit from Mm -hmm. being told that actually physical activity will reduce some of your side effects you know they will help you feel better they will put you in a better frame of mind mentally you know if you can set yourself small challenges even if it's a challenge of walking around the block um you know three days after treatment that will make you feel like you've achieved something and it's good for your health uh, all around so but i don't think we automatically tell people that yeah, you know, we you, you sit down and as an oncologist and you go through all the leaflets that mm-hmm. tell you that you're gonna you know potentially lose your hair, that you're gonna get mouth ulcers, that you're gonna lose your sense of taste and on the organ. But all these ghastly things, but you don't actually tell people, not you, Lucy, but you know, yeah, well. person, you know, don't necessarily tell people that you can still do exercise and you should still do exercise. And something I, I see quite often, actually, is that, that when someone is diagnosed, their their loved one, their partner, whoever is most close to them, what they want to do is wrap their, their loved one in cotton wool and, and and they want to do everything. They want to make them cups of tea. They want you to rest on the sofa. And and actually, just sometimes all we need to do is give give people permission that it is OK to, to get out for walks. And, and particularly, I think, over the last year with covid and shielding and and all of that going on in the background people with cancer a lot of people with cancer have been too scared to do anything to leave their house at all um and and sometimes it's it, it is just as simple as as giving people permission um i think that's true and i think i think that's a really good point i actually think cancer is harder for the loved one than it is for the sufferer um uh because you know, we, we as, um, as as sufferers of cancer sort of kind of 
tend to put on this practical mind about right you know this is what it is and you know we're going to do a b c and you know we're going to do what the oncologist mm. tells us to do and and so actually I, I sometimes think it's harder for for our loved ones because you know they they, they are not especially during lockdown they haven't been in in appointments um so they can't hear all the things the oncologist is saying they can't hear all the positives you know our our own reflection of those meetings can sometimes just dwell on the negatives uh and so on so you know I, I do think it's challenging but you know my other half's come out for walks with me um he has said things like you know don't go too far on your bike <laughs> I'm like, it's fine I'm only going up to you know Rochester and back and he's like yes but that's 20k and I'm like well that's you know it's half what I would normally do so don't worry <laughs> um but you know, I can understand why people get worried. And again, it's about the general fear and, and sometimes, you know, misperception of cancer as well. And there is, like you say, there is this stereotype, isn't there? The, the stereotype person with cancer doesn't have hair. They're, you know, on television, you never portray someone with advanced cancer going out living a normal life because it's not good television. So we all have these preconceived ideas that, may or may not be right and everyone's cancer is is very different and everyone's treatment is very different and I think people like you and and increasingly now in the media there are more people living their best lives with you know even with very advanced cancer getting out there and saying look I've got cancer but you wouldn't know to look at me I look completely like anybody else that you bump into in the supermarket yeah I think I think that's true I mean there were moments where I thought oh my god you know I do look like I've got cancer, you know, when my eyebrows and my eyelashes mm -hmm. fell out along with my hair. And I remember walking in, in a chemo <laughs> session, I remember walking to the to the toilet with the, you know, the IV drip and thinking, right, that's it. I, I am currently looking like a cancer patient. And then you sort of kind of slap yourself around the face and saying, well, so what? You know, you have cancer. Um, <laughs> like, um, but at the same time, it it's not about necessary look and I've actually found losing my hair quite liberating mm. um and uh, and it's growing back quite quickly now anyway I quite like the buzz cut I think I might <laughs> um but um uh but it's about it's just lifestyle um as much as anything um you know I really thought I was I was quite healthy but even so I've changed quite a lot of my general lifestyle um including what I'm eating, what I'm drinking, you know, my stress levels are much lower. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not sweating about lots of different things that mm. in the past I would have been stressed about. And now I'm just like, oh, there's no point getting stressed about that. So, you know, I think I think it does change your your outlook on life. Um, and it certainly makes what well, it's certainly made me want to do more in terms of challenging myself Um I want to do, I want to see more places. I want to do more things. Um, I don't mind sitting at home and wasting a Saturday in my pyjamas if it's raining. But, you know, if it's not raining, I want to get out and I want to do stuff. So that was that was something I, I was going to ask later on. So, so often, I think, in my experience, when people, sometimes even when they think they've got cancer and then they turn out, that they don't they're, they're for that short period where they believe that they've got cancer and they face up to their own mortality 
that that makes them reevaluate what's important to them, who's important to them. And I I like to think that COVID's actually given everybody this this circuit breaker and it it is an opportunity to to really take a step back and think, well, what do I want to keep in my life when life gets back to normal? And what do I want to take away? Who who does make me happy? What does make me happy? Um, it sounds like you've had that to some extent. Do you think do you think there is hope from from COVID giving the whole population that opportunity? Or do you think we'll all just get back to normal and, you know, carry on as we always have done? No, I, I mean I hope that it has given everybody that opportunity to reassess, reevaluate what is important in their lives. Um and you know, I think I think you're right in terms of when you're when you're diagnosed with a disease, it doesn't have to be cancer, it can be sort of kind of other um diseases that could be life-threatening if, if not treated quickly mm, enough. Yeah. Um I think it does make you kind of reassess what is important. Um and I, it gives you a certain amount of wisdom as well about you know things that you can pass on to other people. Uh, I mean I'm immensely annoyed with myself that I never sorted out life insurance for example um and you know I mean why why, why should I I was at the time what, 44 fit yeah. in a in a fairly secure job um and um I'm just like why, why would I why would I need life insurance you know the mortgage is covered if I cark it so you know what's what's the point and then you sit there thinking wish I've got my life insurance because of course now all my premiums if I do get any yeah just ridiculous so uh, I think it does give you um a, a, an opportunity to reassess your life I, I mean another personal example for me lockdown the first lockdown actually helped with this and this was pre-diagnosis but I feel it even more now post-diagnosis being an MP means that you're taken away from your family for four days a week. So, you know, pre-COVID, I would leave work on, a, I, I'd leave the house on a Monday and I wouldn't come home until a Thursday. And you've got a little boy, haven't you? Yeah. And he was born into that. So, you know, Freddie was born into that lifestyle. He's completely chilled about it. The longest time I'd spent at home with him was my 10 or 11 weeks maternity leave. The rest of his life has been with me leaving on a Monday and coming back on a Thursday. Then all of a sudden lockdown comes. We have, what, 12 weeks at home. That's mm -hmm. the longest I've spent in his life at home. Um, and then, um, and I actually really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed sort of kind of putting him to bed and, um, you know, bathing him and giving him stories, which of course I'm still doing four nights a week. But, you know, you sort of kind of didn't realise how much you missed the, the other three days. Um, and then diagnosis came in June and I haven't been to London since June. And all of a sudden, it's sort of kind of like, okay, I do have, I, you know, I, I love my job, and I have no intention of quitting it. But there is a, a case of can I rebalance it? So actually, I can be home more often, you know, than I was before. And so you sort of kind of begin to think of alternative ways of working. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, with the way COVID has impacted parliamentary business and allowing us to participate virtually and allowing us to have proxy votes and things like that. Is this something that if we want to be a bit more family friendly, if we want to be a bit more women friendly, could we you know, do something like this going forward? So I think both COVID and cancer has helped me kind of think there might be different ways of people becoming parliamentarians and allowing us to have a proper work-life balance. And do you think that might mean that more women 
go into more 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 women with families find it easier to go into politics yeah well certainly people shouldn't feel because because what happens is people get elected um to parliament sometimes unexpectedly get elected yeah. to parliament and of course you know the vast majority of mps are not ba- are not based in london the families are not based in london yeah and so it's not just women, actually, you know, men feel it as well. My male colleagues feel it as well. You do. It is a wrench to leave home. And but you know what you're signing up for and and therefore you just get on with it. But it is hard. And I think that that the fact that it is so hard does increase stress levels, both at work where you are you know, pained that you're missing your family, but also when you get home, because actually the job doesn't stop when you get home. And therefore, you then have this kind of issue if you're trying to balance work with home life. And actually, what you want to be able to do is come home, switch off the phone, switch off the laptop, and concentrate on being at home. And it just being an MP just doesn't work like that. So I think that we have you know, with, with things, us being capable of working from home, like every other, you know, with other professions, I think we we can perhaps allow, you know, a bit more freedom, a bit more flexibility going forward. And I think that will help younger people, not just women, but younger people with families who want to do something uh, like become a, a politician, you know, get involved. Because you were the first Conservative minister to have maternity leave, is that right? I was. I mean, there had been other Conservative MPs who'd had babies and had been on maternity leave, but I was the first minister. I wasn't the first Conservative minister. I wasn't the first minister. Labour uh, obviously had many female ministers in um, uh, the 1997 to 2010 era, uh, and they, they had had um, children while in office. But I think the 2010 election brought in a lot younger cohort of women uh, into the Conservative Party and therefore it was only a matter of time before one of us ended up having a baby while in ministerial office so yeah I was the first minister it worked very well I mean I, I I have no complaints whatsoever with how it all operated and worked. You've, you've broken a lot of boundaries over your your life so far <laughs> um so I know you were you were previously minister for sport and then I think in 2018 that role was included to loneliness so I never heard of minister for loneliness if you can call it that until I started doing a little bit reading about you um but obviously a lot of people with cancer have spent most of the last year shielding they've been labeled clinically extremely vulnerable which is a term that that I think stirs up a lot of fear um, a lot of resentment amongst amongst people um it's been really hard watching kind of from the other side of the fence people go through cancer treatment on their own and and some of the fear you know I remember talking to a, a young mum who'd finished her treatment and she was too scared to take her kids to the park um so as as covid kind of eases and vaccination kind of increases and the restrictions ease how how do you think that we can help those people who have been cut off socially for so long either because of a a chronic condition or their age or purely just because of fear um how do you think we can help them not be scared to start becoming social again so i think there needs to be some peer support groups so people can help each other reduce Mm -hmm. the anxiety um and i mean i i i'm a dreadful advert for clinically extremely vulnerable because I have not <laughs> behaved like I should have. Um, and, um, you know, sort of kind of, I, I, 
I haven't been irresponsible. I mean, I haven't been going around hugging strangers or, you know, touching people, but I have still gone to the supermarket. I have still taken my five-year-old to school every day. Um, so, you know, my other half has still gone to work um, because we've just taken an attitude of kind mm -hmm. of just getting, getting on with life. But I do recognise that there are still, you know, huge anxieties uh, among people who who have been better at shielding than me. And it is about helping and supporting those people to reintegrate themselves back into society. Um, my mum is one of those. She, she doesn't mm. have cancer. She has um, COPD. So she too is um, CEV. And she's incredibly nervous. And until she had had her first vaccination, um, you know, it was, we were in a bubble with her, but she was quite nervous about the fact that my yeah. son was still attending school um and and things like that and you know th those nerves have have got you know better since she's had her jab um but I can understand why people are are anxious she won't go to you know the shops or the pharmacy um uh, unless you know unless there is no alternative um but you know I I, I get that but helping people you know having when we're allowed the rule of six you know having mm. which is only in a couple of weeks time having coffee meetings and um and going out and you know sitting down together and physically leaving your house I mean it comes to something when the most exciting part of your week is going to chemo um you know where you actually get to talk to people but um, even that that's normally can be quite a social occasion for patients and, and I, a lot of my patients who've been having treatment for a long time they you know they say it used to be great because we'd see our friends there and now we're called from our car as soon as it's ready we're whizzed up there's no waiting room we said I mean it's much more efficient but it's really antisocial um and it, yeah it, it, cancer's been I think and maybe I'm wrong I haven't been through it but watching it it feels like it's been incredibly lonely um I think it depends on your mindset there because I mean I haven't resented not having someone else with me um okay. because I think I I'd be worrying about them um, interesting and so I mean we had a, um, a very good friend who who sadly did pass away uh, from cancer um uh have have treatment in the same ward that I've been having mine and you know his partner we used to go with him and sit there all day with him and, mm. and everything else. And I, to be honest with you, I couldn't think of anything <laughs> than having my other half sat with me all day. Um, you know, so I kind of used it as an opportunity to just zone out and not be with my other half and the five-year-old who who I've been locked in with all, all this time. So, you know, this was kind of me time, which sounds you bizarre. No, it's not, it doesn't sound bizarre. I think I think everyone's different. Everyone's got their own experience. I guess it depends a bit whether you're having inpatient or outpatient treatment. You've you've had a you had a chemo buddy, or you've you've got a chemo buddy, or you're helping other people. Various, well, but all of those everything, things. all of those things. So uh, one of the girls I played football with, she had breast cancer a few years ago. So she she had been giving me great advice uh, on some of the sort of kind of unexpected things that happen, like severe constipation and uh, uh, and so on um you know it's always nice to talk to someone you know about dry vaginas uh you know it's... but that's all the bit that doctors never would never bring up but well you'd be <laughs> lucky sure. if they did exactly I'm not sure I would be able to kind of take it from you know my male oncologist either <laughs> um but um you know it's it's 
kind of that, that so that she's been around for me but I'm also on a whatsapp group of other people that have either been through it or going through it uh or at different stages of it from the unit that I'm in um and you know there's again it's it's, it's an opportunity to to talk to people you know to talk to the people that you know, personal things like not having sex um uh hairs growing back on your chin you know it's like, why has this annoyed me so much? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and stuff like that. So it, I, I have taken the learnings that I've had from people to be able to support me, to support other people. Um, and there are other people in my constituency and also beyond who've got in touch and have just sort of kind of, you know, welcomed the opportunity to chat. And also a man, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm a buddy with a man. And we were on exactly the same chemo cycle. So we were able to talk to each other um, uh, after our, our Thursday chemo sessions. Um, and I've, I actually feel more strongly about how lonely it must be for a man to be going through breast cancer treatment, mm-hmm. um, you know, with all the pink uh, literature and, and, you know, no one to talk to. You know. So, yeah, it's been a sort of quite interesting, interesting journey. And that, I think that's one of the things that we we when our groups get are running and they're running well and people get to know each other it's one of the really positive things that can come out of it is that that peer support but not just in a coffee room around a crap cup of tea with soggy digestives where you know people are out there they're doing something they're having fun um but they can also talk about the bits that perhaps someone who hasn't had cancer just wouldn't wouldn't understand um I think I've I've heard you talk very positively about the care you've received um, over the last year, um, obviously during the pan- pandemic as well. Um, now you've had first-hand experience of, of NHS cancer services as a patient. What are the things that you think are missing, the things that we could do better and should do better? I think it's a postcode lottery um, around care. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, so... The trust that I am in hasn't stopped any of its cancer services throughout the pandemic. I only have to open a newspaper to see that that's not the case across the country. Um, I and, and I find that sad um, mm-hmm. because I've had wonderful treatment. I've, there's not been any interruption to that treatment. Um, yes, there's been changes in terms of, you know, not necessarily having face to face consultations with your oncologist. But, you know, I think that's become a way of life in, in many mm-hmm different ways so um, you know that's not something that particularly fussed about um but i i think it's it 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 we need to have a much more kind of universal kind of service so that actually um you don't have stories about people not getting their screenings and you know diagnosis being too late and and so on um i think i mean i the one of the trusts in in Kent does have like a one-stop shop for for diagnostics so um uh you can go in and you know see a consultant have an ultrasound have a mammogram have a biopsy all within the same appointment effectively mm-hmm. um that's not the same in my own trust where I I had that done but I had it done privately so you know again it's it's not having that kind of universal service um but I, I don't have any complaints in terms of the treatment. 
Um, although actually, again, this is the other universal aspect of it. My my trust is using the fast forward um, uh, yeah. in, in radiotherapy. So I had five doses of intense radiotherapy. Two of my friends, uh, two buddies, and a man and another woman that I'm, I'm buddies with are in different trusts, and they've had 15 doses of obviously lesser uh, radiation or whatever it is um, but I've had limited side effects in terms of burnt skin um, and uh, all the other things that happen in radiotherapy whereas they're in agony you know and in pain because of the, the radio 15 doses of radiotherapy and I'm just like well I'm getting exactly the same but in five mm -hmm. days so why is it so different you know why why are we making breast cancer patients or whoever go through you know, 15 days of disruption when you can have the same same outcome for five um so that's I kind of sit there and think that, that you know we need to have a more uniform approach to some of these things so we had um in so I work in in Nottingham and in in the East Midlands we had um at our multidisciplinary team meetings there were some hospitals who had to stop all palliative treatment and and in Nottingham we could continue and it just seemed ridiculous that depending on which boundary you lived in you were going to be offered chemo or not offered chemo obviously that was an ex extreme time um what about aftercare when you finished your cancer treatment do you think because this is what this is I guess for me, part of why I wanted to create 5K Your Way, um, do you think that's something that we could do better when people finish their treatment? Well, I'm only at the beginning of my aftercare, so it, it's difficult to answer that question right now. But I am, uh, we, we have a counselling service through oncology um, in the trust that I'm in, and I have been referred to that, and I have my first counselling treatment uh, tomorrow um, because, you know, I, as somebody who, and again, it's, I, I think it depends on what kind of cancer you have. My, my problem is not my physical health, it's my mental mm -hmm. health. Um, and you know, my cancer was cut out, right? So it's, it was gone. And the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy and the hormone treatment are now about making sure it doesn't come back. And I can't get my head around that because I'm a, you know, if you do A, B happens kind of girl. And therefore, you know, not knowing if B is going to happen or not is something that I'm finding really challenging. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I don't want to live my life in fear of either recurrence or some kind of secondary cancer. Uh, and so, you know, I um, uh, so so, you know, counselling is going to, I hope, help with that. And I've got to sign up to the moving uh, on course from breast care now, breast cancer now. Um, but I think that's where the peer groups can also help. Um, also, they cannot help as well because yeah, know, of course. You know, one one of my wonderful WhatsApp groups that I'm on. You know, sadly, people are um, facing secondary uh, cancer mm -hmm. and and in really quite desperate circumstances. Um, and you know, and and although I keep on trying to remind myself of the statistics actually you know you sit and think well it can happen to them it can happen to me or actually worse it will happen to me which is mm -hmm. the kind of place I'm in at the moment so I just got to also remember that by keeping myself physically well eating well reducing stress levels I'm in the same percentage category as everybody else in the country you know in terms of you know cancer occurring in the next 10 years so you know that's but that's 
the hardest bit that's been the hardest bit for me is the bit after treatment everything beforehand I was just doing as I was told um now it's kind of like well see ya off you go. <laughs> I think that's um I one of my close friends actually had um had cancer and it was really interesting from a professional point of view going through it with him and seeing actually he was okay when he was on treatment yeah physically it was really hard but it was the aftermath when he like you he was you know chances are he's cured but but that aftermath of dealing what he's been through um it's great you've you've been offered counseling because I think that is far from universal across the NHS um we're, we're running out of time, Tracy. I think you are an incredible advocate. Um, and, and I've just, I mean, has it been hard sharing your story publicly, going through it in the public? Not really, um, in part because I live in my um, my own constituency and, you know, because we, we're so visible in, 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 you know, where we live and you know, we live in a small community, well, it's not actually that small community, but, you know, people know me and know who I am. And it, it was obvious that, I was going to be going through this in public because constituents are using the same oncology services as me. Mm. So, you know, I mean, I'm sat in the same chemo ward as as people that, you know, shop in the same supermarket. Um, So there was an element of not really having a choice. But at the same time, I did kind of want to destigmatize a bit of it as well. Um, And, you know, I'm just fortunate in that my side effects have enabled me to show the goods, the good side, if you like, of, of going through chemo. Um, I think I still would have done the same, even if I, you know, (laughs) everything else, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I've managed to work. And I think that's the thing is actually a lot of people are out there going through this right now who are still getting on with their lives as they were before. And yet I think probably we don't, we don't think that well that's not somehow our brain is conditioned to to think that we all stop functioning for nine months or whatever it mm-hmm. is that you know people are going through well you're you're helping counteract that um so two questions you, you you've said you're going to max out on life how are you going to do that um actually I'm just going to enjoy things I think a bit more I mean I yeah, I know I, it sounds a bit airy-fairy about you know, <laughs> mindfulness and everything else. But I do, you know, apart from the need for the counselling around the fear, uh, I am trying to sort of kind of live in the moment and, uh, and you know, just enjoy every day for what it brings. Um, and, you know, there are certain things that I, I would like to do, you know, I'd actually, which might be considered luxurious or, you know, too expensive or unnecessary. But actually, I just kind of think, well, why, why shouldn't I? You know, why, why shouldn't I do that? Um, so that's the sort of kind of thing. And I want to be around to see my son grow up, you know. So actually, I, I'm quite enjoying eating really healthy. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, I've got a, a mix of meat and vegetarian vegan diet going on at the moment. So a meat, um, meat and vegan diet I like that <laughs> no, I'm not fully vegan I couldn't possibly cut out well I'm not fully vegetarian I can cut out meat and I could never cut out cheese and milk you know but actually having a couple of days vegan a week is I think really good and it's it's made me feel a lot better 
I've discovered the most incredible recipe book, the green roasting tin. You basically, everything takes 10 minutes. You bang it in the oven for an hour. It's, in, it's, I'm not a cook, but it's so easy. It makes you try different stuff. Definitely worth, um, worth 10 pounds. Right. Um, I'm going on Amazon immediately. <laughs> green roasting tin. <laughs> um, Tracy, thank you very much. Um, we would love you to join our, a uh, 5k your way group one day. Um, I will, I will let you know where they are. Hopefully, yeah. you know, if we believe Boris, we'll be back at the end of June. Um, so fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much for, for joining us and taking giving up your time. Thank you for having me. Wow, what a lady to have in politics. Um, thank you so much, Tracy, for speaking so openly to me about your experience of cancer um, during the pandemic. It was absolutely fascinating to hear your views um, and then some of the things that you think the NHS does well and, and does perhaps less so well. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I've got a sneaky feeling that Tracy's going to use her experience uh, to help shape a more holistic approach towards cancer care in the NHS going forwards. Um, thank you guys for listening. Um, please do get in touch with any comments, any questions, any ideas for future guests. Um, the Move Against Cancer podcast is in its infancy um, and we really want to want to get you guys involved to help us make it as inspiring, informative and empowering as possible. Um, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>